Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. We go to school to be equipped to earn it. We work 40 and 50, sometimes 60 hours a week to have it. We get caught up in countless hours worrying about not having enough of it. We have seen marriages fracture over how to handle it. We invest countless hours, especially on weekends, devising new ways to spend it. We despair when we look back over how we've mismanaged it. We have witnessed many a life corrupted who's had too much of it. And all too often, on far too many occasions, we have found ways to spend it even when we don't have it. Of course, the subject is money, and the issue of money is one that will impact every life that is in this room. Whether we like it or not, money is something that is intertwined and intimately connected with everything that we'll do, including spiritual matters. This morning, we're going to look at getting a grip on your money. And it's one of the most significant challenges that you will ever face in all of life. In fact, the person or the couple who learns to meet this challenge over a lifetime is a man or woman or a couple who have demonstrated remarkable maturity. Generally speaking, money flies in one of four directions. If you want to go north, you can spend it. If you want to go south, you can save it. If you want to go east, you can use your money to pay debt with it. And if you go west, you think of ways to give it. Those are the four directions, generally, that all our money is constantly flying in. And I have observed that in getting a grip on your money, the issues of spending and saving in particular require a lot, a whole lot of personal assessment and the mastery of a number of specific management tools of finance. For instance, you need a workable budget. Many people have never learned even how to have a budget. You need short and long-term financial goals. And if you're a couple, you need to discuss at hour's length how you determine you're going to meet these goals with realistic objectives. You need to learn how to manage a budget on the day-to-day, -day, how to balance even a checkbook, and finding right investments that over a lifetime will take you where you want to go and secure the things that you're saving for. I mentioned that on saving and spending because in the two directions of saving and spending, all this deliberation, all this consideration, all this pondering and reflection takes time, the kind of time that we don't have much of today. So I would like to begin this morning by recommending to you a class that's going to be taught in our equipping center quite soon. It's a class entitled Money, Frustration, or Freedom. And Ron and Terry Franks and Bill and Susan Hoig and Gary and Karen Alexander are going to be hosting that class. And if you're a young couple or you're someone who struggles with money, an individual, this might be the kind of class that would be perfect for you to give you the kind of time over a 12-week period of time for you to sit and ponder and think and reflect over these two areas. 
You need time in saving and spending. So this morning, what we're going to look at is the other two directions, east and west of money. Those two directions being debt and giving, which I think need more clarity, which I think I can offer this morning, than they need time and tools. There is tremendous confusion out there when it comes to these two specific items, and it needs to be cleared up. And so in the moments that we're going to be spending together, I hope to share a little bit of light on the fog that settled in on the areas of debt, your debt, and your giving. On your outline, let's first wrestle with the issue of debt. And let's begin with a very simple question. Is it wrong to be in debt? Now that sounds like a simple question, but the confusion that reigns around it has made it anything but an easy answer. And I've talked to people for years about this issue, and I've concluded that a lot of our confusion is sourced from three very specific locations. Let me list them for you. First, our confusion comes from authorities that we read and respect. From authorities that we read and respect. A number of weeks ago, I took my wife away for kind of a weekend getaway, and we went to Memphis, Tennessee, and I stopped in the midst of that weekend away and perused a Christian bookstore there in Memphis, and I went to the section entitled Money and Finance. There's a whole host of very good books that are there with, uh, written by authors that uh, many of whose names you would be familiar with. And because I was anticipating preaching on money, I looked specifically in their chapters on debt. And after reading what each book said about debt, I got the following message very loud and very clear. And this is what it said from all these sources. And that is this. The Bible does not forbid debt, but it's wrong. Now, does that sound odd? And does that sound just a bit confusing? Well, it certainly was to me. Over and over again in these books, uh, as I read through these chapters, there would be somewhere embedded in that chapter a line, line that said, all debt is not unbiblical. But what I couldn't help but get caught up in emotion with were all the horror stories that ruined people's lives who got into debt, all the descriptions of what happens if you try debt, what will happen to those when the economy bellies up and the communist or whoever is in power, New Agers at that time, take over and come looking for those of us who are Christians who are in debt? And all the slavish statements that were made, such as Proverbs 22.7, which does say, the borrower is the lender's slave. There were constant exhortations over and over again that the only place of financial safety in this life was to be completely and thoroughly out of debt. And rarely was there ever any statement offering a balance to these warnings. And many of the warnings, by the way, are very legitimate. Debt is a very dangerous thing. But finding any positive statement of any kind in any way on the other side of the debt issue was like looking for a needle in the haystack. So what it left you with as you closed the book was this doubled message that said, debt is not wrong, but it is. And that creates such confusion and guilt in the reader. And I know many of you feel that this morning. Secondly, there is confusion about what we believe here at the church and how we actually live. I want you to look on your diagram, on your outline rather, you'll see a couple of graphs. The first one there on the left 
has, is it wrong? It's the question that I asked last week that 610 of you responded to, and that is, is it wrong to be in debt? Here's what you said. The first bar to the left says that 350 of you said, yes, it's wrong to be in debt. 57% of those who responded. On the other hand, 260 of you said, or 43% said, no, it's not wrong to be in debt. So when it comes to discussing the debt, if, if we were in any crowd here at Fellowship and you started talking about whether it was right or wrong to be in debt, we are a house divided. Okay, let's just throw that out there. But then look at the second graph to the right. When it comes to the practice of debt, my friends, we are a house unified. <laughs> e pluribus unum right here in this room. The first bar says that 99 people said that they were out of debt. The second bar said that 450 of the respondents said, I'm in debt, but I'm, I'm managing it. And then there were 66, the bar to the far right, who said, I'm in debt and I'm in trouble. If you take the last two bars and combine them, that's 85% of the respondents say that they're in debt. When you compare that to the fact that 57% said that all debt is wrong, what you get in that mix is confusion and guilt. There's a third source of our confusion when it comes to debt, and it's reflected in how far those who are living debt-free, apply that. There are a number of people over the years as our church has grown and from time to time we've incurred some debt, as you know, in building and probably the most debt in our history in this latest building project, who have come and said with, with zeal in their faces that they felt like it was wrong for our church to go into any debt. On a number of those cases, I've asked that person if they personally are in debt. Most of the time, they were. And I have wondered whether that was an inconsistent application of life, if not even hypocritical. On the other hand, there are some who are in fact debt-free that seem to have no problem making money off of people by encouraging them to go into debt. It seems odd to me that a person who thinks debt is sinful would then go and put his money in a bank or invest it in stocks and bonds and things like that that sin by loaning people money to get them in debt and then making a profit off of it. You see, that's kind of like being against smoking and thinking all smoking is wrong and then buying all the stock in the Marlboro Company. You see, if debt is in fact thoroughly evil, then both sides, both the borrowing of the money but lending to the weaker brother to get him into debt is wrong as well, I believe. Well, have I thoroughly confused you at this point? If I could point to one verse in the Bible that is the chief antagonist of all this confusion, the one that is held up more than any other, it's Romans 13.8. I'd like you to turn to the book of Romans, and you will find this very emphatic statement that seems to leap off the page in verse 13, at least the first part of that verse, that says, Oh, no man, anything. Over and over again, I want you to know I've had this verse held up to me as the definitive statement on debt. A signature statement that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that all debt is wrong, sinful, and evil. It says it, doesn't it? Oh, no man, anything. Before I discuss verse 8, let me just uh, mention to you that the Bible 
is very clear about warning about the dangers of debt. I have no argument with that. Debt is in some ways like nitroglycerin and needs to wear the label warning, explosive materials, handle with care. And that's how I've felt about debt all my life. And that's how everyone should feel about debt, I believe. Nevertheless, in the Old Testament Mosaic Law, I want you to know if you studied the Mosaic legislation of the nation of Israel, people were not prohibited from borrowing and lending and going into debt. Israel as a national economy was told by God not to borrow from pagan nations as a nation. But within the nation, the people freely interchanged in commerce and borrowed and lent to one another. And when it came to foreigners, the people of Israel would loan to them at interest. And so in that sense, in the Mosaic economy, borrowing and lending was not prohibited by God. Deuteronomy 23 would be a good reference in that regard uh, for you to look at. When you come to the New Testament, right at the very beginning as Jesus speaks His first Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.42, He says this, Give to Him who asks of you, and do not turn away Him who wants to borrow from you. Certainly it was still in force even in Jesus' day. Jesus all the time talked about parables that were about investing and making interest. If you remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, uh, the part, of the part of the parable was to lash out at this slave who took his money and hid it rather than taking his money to a bank and investing it and earning interest off of it so that he could have a return to give to his master. I say all that because from Old Testament to New, it seems strange that one verse in Romans would somehow make all of the national life of Israel plus even Jesus' words evil in nature. What this means is we need to take a second look at Romans 13.8. I want you to notice the context there in the first seven verses. They have to do with government and obeying the authorities and in specific paying your taxes. Uh, so it has to do some with money, though not necessarily and specifically with you borrowing from a bank or from somebody else. But I want you to notice verse 7 because if you study the Bible, one of the things that you're going to learn is you have to carry the influences of the context into any statement that's made. And, and there's a very rich context being drawn into verse 8, and we can sample some of it by looking in verse 7. It says there in verse 7, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due, and honor to whom honor is due. Let me tell you, that's a very important verse. Do you see the words, do them, in verse 7? You might circle them for just a reminder. The word do is the Greek word aphile. It's only used one other time. Jesus uses it in one of His statements in the Gospels. And when He uses aphile, though it's translated here, do, it means debt. You see, verse 7 is about being in debt. Being in debt to the government, being in debt to the local officials, and being in debt in many ways, on not monetary ways, but in respect ways to the governing authorities. You're in debt to them. Now I mention that because verse 7 is asking Christians to render or pay their debts that they owe people, in particular the government, i.e. the government, when it's due. We do the same thing with our taxes. Now some of you who are self-employed prepay your taxes. A lot of you don't. But during the course of this year, you're in debt to the United States government. 
And even some of us who are self-employed and do give prepayments, that awful day of April 15th approaches and we go to our accountant and then discover even though we prepaid a certain amount, we're still short. And so on April 15th, we have to pay our debts. See, we're in debt to the government and pay what is due them on time. That's exactly what is going on here in verse 8. It's asking you to owe no man anything, and in particular, the government, when you pay off your debts when it is due. Secondly, it talks about custom when custom is due. Custom could be translated customary debts. Those were local debts for certain specific services. And I think you and I are in debt every month to local services for certain customary things like water and electricity and heat and gas and things like that. And let me tell you, though a lot of people think of themselves as debt-free, every time you get that little bill, you're in debt. That's what you are. You're in debt unless you want to try to prepay that. And so now you've got to pay that, and the call is to pay it when it is due. Now, why do I say all that? Because when you get to verse 8, you are carrying verse 7's influence into verse 8. And you're also carrying, by the way, if you're a good theologian, which I hope you are, all the rest of the influence of the Bible. And this verse 7, which has debt assumed for you. See, when you get to verse 8, it's not assuming that you're not in debt. It's assuming that you are in debt when you come to verse 8. And then it says, owe no man anything. And you know what I want to add to that? Because here's the influence. Owe no man anything when? Past due. That's what it's talking about. Owe no man anything, not ever. That would be bondage. Could you possibly live in this world owing no one anything ever? No. No. You couldn't do that in Israel. You couldn't do it in Jesus' day. You can't do it now. But you can owe no man anything past due, except love. And as the verse goes on to say in verse 8, you're always in debt to people when it comes to love. I believe this interpretation, owe no man anything past due, creates a consistent message from the Old Testament through the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation. It makes, for instance, Psalms 37, 21 make sense where it's when it says, the wicked borrows but does not repay. You see, my debt-free friends would say, see, it's wicked to borrow. I don't think that's what it's saying. The wicked borrows and does what? He doesn't pay when it's due. It's not borrowing that's wrong. It's going past the due date with no intention to repay. That's evil. Years ago, my, uh, my mom, before she died, suffered from a very severe heart fibrillation. Uh, she's given that to me. I have a, an, an arrhythmia of sorts from time to time where your heart races and goes real fast and doesn't stop and you have to take medication for it. As she grew older, that condition grew worse and it came to a place where she had to take one of the last medications that they even had to offer. It was extremely strong. And I remember being at her home one day and she showed me this prescription and it was scary enough. It was this bottle of pills and on this prescription was a big red and cross bones. And it had warning after warning about overdosing in this that would cause immediate death. It was a poison, it said. And you shouldn't take this poison and you should have it regulated and she should have constant monitoring of how much of that poison was in your system. But you know, the interesting thing was that poison properly regulated in very small dosages made her heart work just fine. 
Well, several years went by, and there came a time in her life where, for whatever reasons, she became lax in monitoring that. And slowly and subtly, that toxicity of that poison began to build up in her system. And without warning, she went into what is medically called toxic shock. I will never forget when the doctors called me and told me my mom was in the ICU unit, and I rushed down there, and for the next 12 hours, we hung between life and death. I remember when I walked through those doors watching her pulse go from 90 to 80 to 70 to 60, got all the way down to 40, and we were just giving our goodbyes as they tried to frantically purge her system of this toxicity. And thankfully, finally, they were able to do that and she recovered. Now, the reason I share that with you is because it wasn't that the poison or the medication was evil, but it was dangerous. And the fact was, it would work extremely well to regulate a major problem in her life unless she became careless. Because you see, the poison in small doses was a good thing. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because I want you to know debt is a poison. Debt is extremely dangerous. But now I want to give you the flip side. But there are times where debt taken in small doses can be a very good thing in the world in which we live. You'll never hear that in many of these books. It can be a very good and helpful thing. On the other hand, if it is left unmonitored in your life, or if you don't check the residue that's building up from other debts, it can create a toxic shock in your financial life that is absolutely and utterly deadly. Now, the question we need to ask is, when is debt right? Is there a time when debt is right? And I think there is. And I want to give you three things that need to be taken together, just general principles to help you kind of monitor when debt is right. These are monitoring questions. I believe debt is right when it makes economic sense, not just to me, because I'm not a rock and I'm not an island. When I'm alone, I can be in trouble. But when it makes sense, not just to me, but to those financially mature people around me that I share my proposal to go into debt with. And if they say, you know, Robert, that makes good sense, then that's a good sign that maybe at this point going into debt is okay. It might be for those people whose mom and dads have never been able to afford college, a young man takes out a college loan to pay his way through school because economically the job and the income he'll have on the other end far outweighs the dangers of that debt. Could be in starting a business where men around you say, yeah, that's a good sound investment and you have to take out a business loan to start that new company. It could be in buying a home. There, it's not as much so now, but there was a time where investing in a home because of its appreciation was a great investment and it gives you a home for your family and the interest you can deduct on your taxes. And it makes good economic sense. When it does that in small doses, then there's some positive aspects to the issue of debt. Secondly, debt is right when I can demonstrate it is well within my ability to repay. Underline the words well and within. Well within my ability to repay. And then finally, debt is right, and this concerns marriage, when husband and wife agree. On the other hand, debt is wrong when I borrow without any consideration as to how that will affect my other financial obligations. Some of you have had times when you're at a store, uh, sometimes it's even a big ticket item like a car, and you get, 
You get swept away by the sales presentation and the dealer showing uh, all these new features on this car. And in the emotion of that and the spontaneity of the moment, you buy that car. And then the first payment hits. And you realize, despite all that they said and all the gyrations of the numbers, that now other financial obligations are under severe stress and may not be able to be met. And all that additional revenue that you used to have fun on now is gone and all you can do is just drive around town. <laughs> and you know that gets old no matter how good they make it look in the advertisements, just driving around doesn't cut it. Debt is wrong when I have no sure way of paying it back. You see, the wicked borrow and don't repay. And there are many times people borrow and have the intent to borrow where they have no idea how they're going to repay. And that's sin, S-I-N. And finally, debt is wrong when I borrow without my mate agreeing to it or even worse, knowing about it. Like my mom's medicine, I want you to know that debt is an extremely deceptive item. It can do good things for you in small doses, but it can also slowly and subtly build up in your financial system to a toxic level that puts you in toxic indebtedness and ruins your life. Before we move this and on to giving, I want to give you 11 road signs that I see in people's lives that indicate they're on the way. They're not there yet, maybe, but they're on the way to toxic indebtedness. First one would be this. You don't know how much debt you have, and on top of that, you're afraid to add it up. Do you know how much debt you have? Secondly, you pay the minimum payment on your credit card or cards each month, just the minimum, sometimes just the interest. Thirdly, you pay off credit card payments with other credit cards. Fourth, your mortgage payment or rent is more than 45% of your take-home pay. You are one or more months behind in paying one or more bills. You pay for daily household bills with borrowed money. You cancel your auto insurance on one or more of your cars. You cancel your health insurance. You consistently use your tithes and offerings to pay your bills. You have received a letter from a collection agency. You have had something repossessed. Of course, they get more volatile as we go through that list. But if any or all of these are true of you, you need some immediate help and some immediate accountability. Because when it comes to biblical debt... The sin is when it's past due. And the importance of debt is to be used in a way that makes economic sense, not economic suicide. Now with saying that, let me turn to a second direction our money flies, and that's in relationship to giving. And this is a very important subject because there's a whole enrichment of life that revolves around the issue of giving. Last week on the survey, I had you fill out at the bottom some questions, if you had any questions about giving. And I want to tell you what the number one most asked question was and then give you the others. The number one most asked question was, what is a tithe? Now, you know, it's so funny because I stand up here week after week and talk about tithes and there's a large part of the body. I'm not even sure what it is. 
So we need some instruction there. And then people ask these questions. Uh, should tithing come before or after bills? Should tithing be on your gross income, what you bring home, gross take-home pay, or, uh, or just your gross pay, what your company's paying you, or your net income, what you bring home? Should all your tithe go to the local church? Now, those are four really important questions. And I want you to know, if we rightly define the tithe from the Old Testament perspective, we can answer all four of those questions just with a definition of the tithe. So let me walk you through a biblical Old Testament perspective of the tithe. The word tithe literally means a tenth part. We know from ancient history that man used the number 10 as the base number for his counting system, at least in Europe and the Middle East. And uh, some think that was because in the, uh, in the ancient days, in the very real primitive days, you counted with 10 fingers and 10 toes. Maybe that's how it started. But at any rate, the number 10 came to represent totality. I mean, if you had 10 fingers, you had, you had it all. Or 10 toes, that was totality, completeness. And giving a tenth of what you had came in a symbolic way to represent giving all of yourself in totality, completely to something. Even before Moses and the Mosaic law, even before, because we always associate tithe with the Old Testament and Moses and the people of Israel, but the tithe extended far beyond that. Even in pagan cultures, people gave to their deities a tenth. Even before Moses was even born, when you had Abraham coming from a pagan culture, when he was on his way back from a battle uh, in Genesis 14 and he met the high priest of God, Melchizedek, he gave him a tenth of all the spoils of that war in order to honor his God and to symbolize he was giving himself completely to God. Jacob in Genesis 28 promised God a tenth of all, of all he had. So the tithe did not originate with Moses and the Mosaic legislation. But when Moses did come, and when God did speak from Mount Sinai, and He came down with the Ten Commandments and all the legislation that flowed out of that, He did command every Israelite in Leviticus 27, verse 30, that the people give a tenth of all that they had to Him. It was called the Lord's tithe. And every cent of that 10% which came from each Israelite's income was used to support specifically the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and their ministries before the Lord and with the people of the nation. Now, it's important to note that the Old Testament tithe was not money you could spread around at your discretion. In other words, you could not give, based on your feelings or your thoughts or ideas, part of your tithe to the priest, then part to some needy people that you knew down the street, or to some local charity or whatever and so forth and so on. The tithe was sacred and it was absolute. It went solely to support the Levitical priest and the spiritual ministries that they performed within the nation of Israel and with the people. Now, if, perhaps, you had a cause that you personally wanted to give to, a needy person that you personally knew of that you wanted to invest in, or some other ministry, apart from all that, that you wanted to be a part of supporting, you could do that in Israel. But it had to be over and above the tithe because the tithe was sacred. And that kind of giving was called free will giving in the Old Testament. Now I'm trying to give you a technical definition of the tithe. It was a designated absolute sum of money commanded by God to give 
for the ministry of the Levitical priests and the ministries they perform. Because if we have that technical tithe, I can answer all four of the questions that you asked last week. Because you said, what is a tithe? It's a tenth part of your income. Is tithing on the gross or the net? All that they pay you when you come home or just after what they take out? And I want you to know when you go back and you look at all these places that it talks about the tithe, it says Abraham gave a tenth of all after the battle. Jacob gave a tenth of all. In Leviticus, it says they gave a tenth of all. It's funny how tenth and all are always next to each other. So I'd say the answer is gross. Should the tithes be before or after bills? In the Old Testament, it didn't matter. Just as long as you came up with 10% of what you made. And then lastly, should all my tithe go to the local church? Okay? And the answer is, in the Old Testament, a tithe all went to the temple. All went to the priest. Didn't go different places at your discretion. It was absolute. And what you gave other places was called a free will offering. So technically the tithe was a specific amount given to the spiritual community that God had created and you were to support. Does that make sense? But now we come to the real question. Okay? All that to ask this question. And that is, is the tithe valid for New Testament Christians? If you'll notice on your outline, most of you think it is. On the graph on the outline, 569 of you or 95% who responded said the tithe is valid for today. While 33% of, 33 of you or just 5% think it's not. Probably a more helpful statistic, and I wish I had put it on your outline, is this. It was where 263 of you or 41% of you said that you give a tithe, 10%, and you give it all to Fellowship Bible Church. 41% said that. 234 of you, almost the same number, 37% of you said, I give a tithe, but I give part of it to fellowship and part of it other places in different allotments. But that should now arrest your attention in light of what I've told you. Because if somebody said, well, I give 10% of my income and I give five to fellowship and five other places, then I would say, no, that technically is not correct. You give a half tithe to fellowship of 5%. Because a tithe is a tenth, but you give 5%. And then you give a free will offering other places of 5%. Does that make sense? I just want to use it in the technical way it's used. And then finally, 135 of you, or 21%, said, I don't tithe at all. Now what all this says is that 95% of us think the tithe is valid for today but only 41% of us are actually giving a tithe the way the Old Testament prescribes it. And that is to the spiritual community that you're a part of and the people who labor in that spiritual community, the pastors in this case, not the priest. So that leaves us with an uncomfortable feeling, doesn't it? And, and maybe in some ways a sense of guilt and consternation. And that brings us back to the question again. And the question is, is the tithe still in force for New Testament Christians? And I have the answer. You ready? The answer is yes and no. <laughs> I'm going to give you the no side first. Nowhere in the New Testament do the writers of the New Testament require that every Christian give 10% of his or her income to the church. 
You can search the Scriptures in the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation, and nothing is said about the tithe in the New Testament that you have to give 10% to this church. Nothing is said there. And there is no way I can say to you to do the same. That's the law, and the law is not here. It's grace that's here. Instead, the writers of the New Testament emphasize the following, what I call major principles concerning giving. We're going to move kind of quick, but I want you to take your Bibles because you need to see this. There are four of them. First of all, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, I'm going to cite only one source, but I want you to know I could cite a number of sources on each one of these principles. But I think one will just be helpful in getting us started. First, this is the first what I call major principle of New Testament giving. In 2 Corinthians 8, it says that our giving should be generous, even sacrificial. For instance, look at verse 1 of chapter 8. As Paul speaks, he says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace, not the law. Do you see that? Not the law, the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. In other words, these Macedonian churches had experienced the grace of God in their life. They weren't under compulsion to give. They had experienced God. They were excited about the things of God and the direction that God was moving the world, and they wanted to be a part of it. And so, in light of that grace, not law, verse 2, that in the greater ordeal of their affliction, of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty. See, they had joy and poverty at the same time. But yet, here's what happened. All of that overflowed in a wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability, and then he goes, and beyond their ability, they gave freely of their own accord. And how did they give if they gave beyond their ability? They gave sacrificially. They gave generously. These are poor people. Now, if we wanted to turn to rich people, we'd turn over to 1 Timothy 6, where Paul, in teaching this young pastor, Timothy, how to teach, tells Timothy these words in 1 Timothy 6. He says, Instruct the rich not to be conceited with their hopes fixed on riches, but to be generous and ready to share so that they may take hold of real life instead of a pseudo-life. Secondly, and this is according to 2 Corinthians 9, so you're there in chapter 8, you can just turn the page. Our giving should not come from outward pressure. That's law. Me up here screaming that you need to give a certain amount of money. But it should be a carefully thought out decision which one makes privately before God that he or she can cheerfully live with. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, 6. He says, Now this I say, he who sows or gives sparingly, well, he's going to also reap sparingly. And he who gives bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each, now that you know that, just now that you understand that principle, then understand this. Let each one of you do just as he has purposed. The word means to choose beforehand. See, you shouldn't be giving spontaneously. The first thought of giving should not be when Alan says, now let's pray for the offering. Oh yeah, I got to give. 
See, real New Testament giving is a man or woman or a couple who sit down, they consider how God has blessed them, what He's done for them, what kind of income that He has caused them to have, the wealth that they possess, and then prayerfully with consideration with all the examples of the Bible there, they should say, we need to give this percentage of our income to the work of God and then hold to that commitment. That's beforehand. That's what he says, as each has purpose in his heart, not grudgingly, don't do it if you have to do it, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that's what he's saying here. Should be done with a person who's doing it because he's excited about the things of God. Now, does that mean that every time you write your check, you're going to be laughing? <laughs> Let me tell you, I don't. In fact, there have been times where I pull my checkbook out to pay my tithe to the church, and I didn't have the money. There have been bills that have come from different ways and it's not there. And, I, and I've got to readjust how I'm going to keep my commitment. But you know what happens over time? When you live in that kind of purposeful, committed, convicted way, you experience God. You experience the blessings of God. You experience the reality of God. That's what I think he's saying here. He who gives bountifully will reap bountifully. Thirdly, according to 1 Corinthians 9, hold your place in 2 Corinthians, but turn back to 1 Corinthians 9. And again, we could look other places, but I want to choose this because according to 1 Corinthians 9, our giving should first and foremost, I believe, support the ministries and the ministers of the church community we're a part of. I think that's consistent with both the Old and the New Testament regarding giving. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 9. For it is written in the law. See, now he draws the example of the law. And by the way, all the time the writers of the New Testament are drawing not the legislation of the Mosaic law, but the examples of the Mosaic law forward because they're helpful for us in definitions. And so he does this here. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. In other words, take the muzzle off so he can eat while he works. God is not concerned about oxen, is He? Or is He speaking altogether for our sake, the ministers of the gospel? Yes, and for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much to ask if we should reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Look at verse 14. So also the Lord, not just me, Paul, but so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. I think one of the key principles, because you don't have all kinds of different ministries in the first century. You just have the church. That's the ordained institution of God. That in giving, the church should be first and foremost when you think about giving. And then finally, by way of example, we now come to the tithe. Remember I said the Old Testament draws, I mean New Testament draws off the Old Testament. And though the Old Testament tithe is not required of us New Testament Christians by law. It's not stated in the New Testament. You're not going to hear me say you have to give 10% to this church or you're in sin. You're never going to hear that. But I want you to know the Old Testament tithe still prods us by its example. Just like the Old Testament saints and how they live prod us by their example. 
for those of us who want to live holy lives to Christ. I mean, I don't need to look at the law. I can look at my spiritual father, Abraham. And he gave a tenth because he wanted God to know he was sold out. And that's a good example for me if I'm a Christian saying, you know, I want to live a life that's pleasing to God. That example, because it's the only one really given about how much, that example should be important to me. I like what John MacArthur says. And he says it this way. He says, I can't tell you how much to give, but if the law required 10%, I think that is only the beginning of what grace deserves. Well, I want you to know 10% is a lot. And it's hard. And sometimes we need to work up to that if we're young because we're kind of experimenting with the grace of God. But as we come to know the grace of God and see what He does in our life, I, I have to think myself, could I who live after the law give less than those who lived under the law? Could I who live after Christ and know Him and see His life and what He wants to do in this world and the wretchedness of my world support my community less than those who were under the law, did not know Jesus Christ, were wondering how it was going to all work out, but they gave? I don't think so. So let me ask the question now from the yes side. Is the tithe still valid? I would say yes, if you mean it's a powerful example that those who are pursuing godliness will choose to follow. I want to put it to you this way. Let's say there's this young couple, and now here I am, a veteran Christian, 44 years old, looking back over my life, the good and the bad of it. And here's this young, married, fresh-faced, 21-year-old uh, man and woman. They've just gotten married. They're just starting out. And, and they say, in their idealism, we really want to live for Christ. And they begin to talk about that. And then we come to the issue of money. And they say to me, well, how much should I give? I want you to know, I could tell them without a flinch in my spirit, I would say, you know, I would strive from the very beginning to set aside 10% of my income for giving. That's what I'd strive to do. You may not can do it all now, but I would strive to do that. But I would say, since you're young and you're just starting, go ahead and set that objective and, and, and use that to curb your debt and don't let your spending limits run over it, but start there and see what God will do for you over a lifetime. I want you to know this, and this is what I'd tell them. I have never met a person who gives generously who regretted it. But I have met a lot of people who didn't who do. I've never met a person who gives 10% or 12% or 30%. I've never gone, man, I wish I hadn't have done that. Man, I just wasted everything. No, you know what I find in those people? I find joy in life. I find the, that they've opened a whole new world to discovery that those who hoard never understand and who ultimately collapse in on themselves. That's what I find. I, I would tell them with all sincerity, I've never found a person who tithed who regretted it. And so I'd say that'd be a good place to start. Set that aside. Don't let your debts or your, or, or, or your spending limits run over that and, set, and see if God doesn't work in you and help you and disclose Himself to you. Now, then they'd say, well, how do we divide that up between the church or what, what do we do? I would say that's up to you. I'd say the only principle I would offer to you in that first 10%, you've got friends, you've got missionaries, you, and you're going to this church. I'd just say, just remember the church first and foremost. And then go from there as the Lord leaves and be a cheerful 
giver. Pray about that. Think about it and agree together before you give it. You'll notice at the bottom of your outline these two statements. I'm using these bottom two statements to kind of shape our vocabulary from this day forward. If you're going to be giving, I'd sit down and I'd think about it. I'd plan it. I'd commit to it and I'd hold to it and let God work. But that means I'm going to give basically along two lines. The first will be what percent of my income that I decide to give generally to the church. And you may give 3% of your income, 5%, 7%, or 10%. I would hope that ultimately this young couple would shoot for 10% or more. But let's say in the beginning you don't or even now you don't. My point is this. Let's just call that for the sake. It's not. A, it's, now we're going to change it from the technical Old Testament sense to just a general fellowship Bible church sense. Okay? What you give to the church is your tithe. We'll just call it your tithe. may not be a tenth of your income. Let's just call that your tithe. So when you say, I tithe to the church, it's a percentage of your income, whatever you decide before God to give. And then you have other things you might want to give to, charities or whatever, needy people or missionaries or whatever. And that's that second line, and we'll call that our offerings. So when you hear somebody say tithes and offerings, just technically, let's say the tithes are to the church, the offerings are things I want to give free will. Now, when I finish talking to this couple, I think what I would do is I'd open the Bible once again to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I would tell this couple that financial giving as is much or more the most important thing they'll ever do in their life for a number of reasons. First of all, the glory of God. But beyond that, there is nothing that enriches a person's life than letting their wealth go to others. To seeing what it does in others' life, it will enrich their lives. And not only that, as they give, it will shape their character over a lifetime into righteousness. It will. You'll become different. Have you seen a person who holds on to everything? At the end of their life, they're sad. Have you seen a person who's been generous over a lifetime? Are they sad? Find me one. They're usually excited about life because their character has been shaped for the good, the better, and ultimately the best. It will cause you to experience God in special ways. I remember several weeks ago we had a young lady share about, you know, giving money to the church or giving it to get her husband to go back to school to get his master's. And they decided they weren't going to use that money that they gave to the church to send him to school when they could have easily done so. And out of that, what they experienced was God's provision for them to send them to school from another unexpected source. You get to experience God when you live with that kind of principle. And then finally, in the end, it will bring a deep satisfaction to life, which living for yourself never will. That as a veteran, I would tell to my younger counterpart. And then I would read these two verses in 2 Corinthians 9. They're found in uh, verses 10 and 11. It says, Now He, that is God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that is wealth. God who provides and supplies wealth. And God is the provider of all and the supplier of all your wealth. God will supply and multiply your wealth for sowing. He'll do that. As you give, He will increase yours 
for sowing and for giving. And notice, and he will, in, now this is the best part, but, and, and you're going to miss it if you miss this last line. He will increase the harvest of your righteousness. Here you are investing in things. You're not just buying another something for you with more glitz on it, but you've invested in things. And he gives you a return on that. In the lives of people, you begin to see a harvest. People come into Christ, ministries being born up and supported, people changing the world because of you. He will increase the harvest of your righteousness and you will get to live with that for a lifetime, which is the ultimate satisfaction. That's what he says. And then in verse 11, he says, as kind of a general promise, and you will be enriched in everything for all your liberality. Remember the responsive reading? I am afraid. I'm afraid. A lot of you are afraid. You see, the bottom line finally on giving is not a law. Not a have to. The bottom line on giving is a person entering into a belief and a trust in God and a desire, a holy desire, to have His giving liberal nature mine. That's the bottom line. Let's pray. Father, there are so many things in Your Word that we approach cautiously because they scare us. And yet at the same time, they woo us because they say this is the path of life. And now we're challenged to make a decision at that crossroads, either to proceed in the safe way or the faith way. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ and for myself as well. I pray that we might be called generous before our life is over. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.